And so listen, the gospel is not merely, the end is near, but neither is it merely God loves you and wants you to go to heaven. What we preach must include both repentance and faith. You're listening to a sermon series titled Jonah, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. going to start this morning with a poem. You can see it on the screen. There's a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself hath sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky sent, ye who from God depart. While it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. This morning we arrive in Jonah chapter 3, which what can only be described as the climax of the book. What happens in chapter 3 in the city of Nineveh is both sensational And yet, at the same time, it's almost unbelievable. And so I want to say something that I want everyone to hear this morning. The greatest miracle in the book of Jonah was not a great fish swallowing a man. It is a great city repenting because of the preaching of a man. And what we're going to see today is really a second chance for Jonah. It's not only a second chance for Jonah, it's a second chance for the people of Nineveh. And for all of us this morning, we need to know that God is the God of the second chance. Amen? One pastor titled his sermon of Jonah chapter 3, Groundhog Day. (laughs) If you know the reference, you get it. Aren't you so thankful this morning that our God is the God of the second chance? This morning, I want to encourage us from this passage of Scripture to harden not our hearts, but to repent and trust Christ with our eternities. So we're going to look at this chapter, only 10 verses, and we're going to break it down in four different um, sections. So if you're taking notes, I would love for you to look at the screen, take a picture of it if you need to. If you're taking notes, that's even better. Uh, We're going to look at Jonah's mission in verses 1 through the first half of verse 4. And then we're going to look at Jonah's message in the second half of verse 4. And we're going to see how short his message actually is. Then we're going to see in verses 5 through 9 what I'm describing as Nineveh's mortification. And we'll see what that is in just a minute. And then we're finally going to see in verse 10, God's mercy. So with that as our outline, let's begin with verse 1 and look at Jonah's mission. Look again at verse 1 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So notice with me real quick in verse 1 that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. But the message is still the same. It's still arise and go. That's the theme of this series, arise and go. 
Now, hold your place there in chapter 3, and for many of us, it's on the same page, but look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, verse 2, rather. Look at chapter 1, verse 2, and how similar and yet distinct these two uh, messages are. First, God says to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the first time God instructs Jonah to go, he adds that little attachment there that I want you to call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah would have been well acquainted with their evil. He didn't have to list it here in Jonah chapter 1. We talked about this the first study. Jonah would have been very happy, very pleased to speak out against the evil of the Assyrian Empire. They were well known for their evil, and he would have been very happy to call out the message against them. However, now that Jonah is no longer running away from God to Tarshish, this time, God says, okay, call out against it the message that I'm going to tell you. Don't add anything to what I'm going to speak to you, Jonah. Just wait for the message. And so when you look at chapter 3, verse 3, uh, it's liter- or verse 2, it's literally in the Hebrew, proclaiming the proclamation. And so notice that Jonah doesn't run away. He heads west. He doesn't run. He stays and uh, follows God and obeys. And so he goes to Nineveh. Now, let's not forget what we studied last week. Jonah has been spewed out of the mouth of the great sea creature where he has spent several days inside what I would argue is the worst Mediterranean cruise to ever been experienced in all of human history. And so Jonah is wise not to try to repeat that failure. So God says, okay, I want you to go. I'm not changing it. Go and, and preach to Nineveh. And so thankfully, he arises and goes to Nineveh. God brought Jonah back to the original command. And though Jonah had gone wayward, the command of God had not budged an inch. God didn't say, well, let me just kind of, I know where Jonah's coming from, so let me just kind of ease into it. No, he says, no, this is what I've commanded you to do. Go back to what I've called you to do. I'm not going to ease this up at at all. And so verse 3 tells us that God considered Nineveh an exceedingly great city. Now, the first time I ever studied Jonah years ago, I was like, how could God call Nineveh a great city? It's found a lot in the book of Jonah. You don't believe me, uh, you can just go back and read it. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. It's twice in chapter 3, verses 2 and verses 3. It's called an exceedingly great city, and it's called uh, Nineveh, that great city. It's found in chapter 4, verse 11, where God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? where there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. So when God calls Nineveh great, listen, he's not referring to their political power. He's not talking about the size of the buildings. He's not saying like, man, that's a great city. The food and beverage scene there is on point. That's a great city to visit. That's not what he's talking about. God's referring to the scope and the size of Nineveh. And we talked about this in our first study in Jonah, but this city, Nineveh, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And as a city, it was settled on the banks of the Tigris River, about 500 miles northeast of Israel. I think we have a picture of a map. Um, I can't see the screen, so I'm just going to assume we have a picture of a map. I see some nods in agreement, so you guys can see that. And I think there's another picture of the walls that had been excavated. But according to historians, these magnificent walls were eight miles long that, d- that were enveloping the inner city. And then the rest of the city, the outlying areas, 
of this entire district occupied a, a circumference of about 60 miles. So there's Nineveh proper, and then there's the whole accompanying area uh, around it, uh, the whole administrative district. Um, the walls, the inside walls, though they were eight miles long, they were purportedly 50 feet high and, uh, or 50 feet wide and 100 feet high. And that outer wall outside encompassed those fields and smaller towns. Now, Nineveh was founded by someone you may have recognized if you studied the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Look on the screen, a little backstory of Nineveh. We learn from Genesis 10 that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And later in verse 11 and 12, we find out that it's Nimrod who is the founder of not just Nineveh, but the surrounding accompanying districts of those various cities. Now, time is not going to permit us to go into detail about Nimrod, but when the Bible says there in Genesis 10 that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that does not mean that Nimrod was good at hunting duck and deer. All right, he's not just good with a bow and arrow. Guys, like, better than Katniss. He can hit a bow and arrow great. That's not the idea here. It's actually more subversive and sinister than that. When it says Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, the, the implication there is that he was a hunter of men and that he did that before the Coram Deo, before the face of God, obstinately in front of the person of God who had commanded, remember back in Genesis uh, earlier previously, to scatter, to go out from Babel and scatter out into the various parts of the world. God had told Adam and Eve that you are to be fruitful and multiply and scatter out. And Nimrod said, no, let's organize. Let's call people together. Let's gather. And so before the Lord, he was a mighty hunter of men. In fact, the word there in that phrase in Genesis where it says his kingdom, uh, in verse 10, his kingdom was Babel, that word kingdom is the first time it's mentioned in Scripture. And so he set up Nineveh as part of his worldly sinful kingdom. One commentator said this quote, I love this. He says, hence it is likely that Nimrod, having acquired power, used it in tyranny and oppression. And by pillaging and violence, he founded the domination, which was the first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. And then he says this, how many kingdoms have been founded in the same way? In various ages and nations from that time to the present, from the Nimrods of the earth, God, deliver the world. So Nimrod founds Nineveh, and the verse here in verse 3 tells us that it was an exceedingly great city. It was three days' journey in breadth. So the argument uh, there is most likely the perimeter of the city. So if you drew a line in the ground, and you began walking, and you found your way all the way around the perimeter of the city, when you came back to this line you would have found that it would have taken you about three days to get there. There were around 600,000 people living in this enormous place. So not only is it great in terms of size, but there was also great evil that was happening there. As we've mentioned before, Nineveh was a diabolically violent place. Uh, now we have kids in the service, so we have to you know, um, clean this up a little bit. So here's a quote that I found that's still a little bit uh, heavy but I think we can get through this. One record of an Assyrian conquest said this, boastfully. Here's what one of these Assyrian commanders said. He said, in strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered, he's naming some other city. 
I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. By the way, that was the cleaned up version of what I read this week. So uh, Nahum 3.1, Nahum is another of God's prophets, and we'll learn about him in a minute. But in Nahum 3.1, he describes Nineveh as a city of bloodshed. So listen, if there were ever a sin city, okay, uh, Nineveh makes Las Vegas look like Disney World. All right, this was a corrupt place, a large place of large sin, large evil and corruption. And it takes three days to walk around it. But Jonah doesn't walk around it. He takes an entire day and walks straight into the center of the place. And then he opens his mouth. So let's look at what his message is, the second idea here, in the second half of verse 4. It's a brief sermon. Look at it. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now let's camp out here for a minute. Maybe this hasn't stood out to you yet, whether Derek read it in the scripture reading or we just read it again. But this is essentially the worst sermon ever. (laughs) This is horrible. Okay, now... Um, let's have some fun. I've sat through some really bad sermons. I've sat through some bad sermons, and I'm secure enough in the Lord to say this next sentence. And you also have sat through some bad sermons when you visited other churches. Um, <laughs> no, so, so every preacher is going to preach a bad sermon at least once, prayerfully once in a lifetime, not once a week. Um, but I remember I was in a church, and the sermon was so bad that I was literally praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not because the sermon was on the second coming of Jesus Christ, because it was that bad. And I just couldn't wait to escape the church service. But if you look at this, this really is an awful sermon. It's eight words long. Here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So so I took last week's sermon, all my notes from last week, and I put it into a, a website that generates a word counter and it came out with 5,082 words. You poor people. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But just consider eight, an eight-word sermon. The message of Jonah. Just consider this for a minute. If you look again, there's no mention of God's name. There's no mention of God's character. There's no mention of hope. There's no mention of what people need to do. There's no mention of what people have done wrong. There's no mention of what they're supposed to do to avoid the judgment. It's just doom and gloom and wrath and threat. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with that, but we've got to also provide the good news. Now, just as an aside, that is not the purpose of the Word of God, to just merely announce the wrath of God upon sinners. That's not the only purpose of the Scripture. In fact, that is achieved through creation and conscience, according to Romans 1 and 2. So the purpose of the Word of God is to reveal ultimately the person and work of God in Christ. Jonah was only supposed to speak what God had told him. So maybe he's being very literal here, and God had told him what to say, and so he's like, I'm just going to do that. Uh, Maybe those were the eight words God had spoken to him, but in this account, we get nothing more, we get nothing less. And, but what happens next in Nineveh is nothing short of what could be called the greatest spiritual awakening, perhaps in human history. But, but before we get to verse 5, it's important to note one more crucial aspect about Nineveh. If you're taking notes, the name Nineveh is thought to derive from the Akkadian word for fish. So you could say that Nineveh 
is known as Fishtown. That's how you would translate the word Nineveh, Fishtown. Uh, so this becomes fascinating when we learn that the Assyrians, as a people, they worshipped the Sumerian fish goddess Nanshi, or Nanshi, the goddess of water. And uh, often this goddess would be portrayed with a symbol of a vase that had a living fish inside of it. Uh, this was the goddess over the Persian or the Arabian Gulf, depending on who you ask. And so if you wanted to cross the water safely, you would cry out to Nanshi. And I'm sure some of the mariners in chapter 1 were calling out different false idols. Maybe her name got uh, petitioned or called out to as they were uh, in the stormy seas in the Mediterranean. Uh, but not only that, that's not the only goddess they served. They also served and worshipped Dagon. Dagon was the chief deity of the Philistines, the father of Baal and a god of fertility. Dagon's name sounds like fish. And so for that reason, Dagon, I think we have a picture, is always depicted with the statue of a man with a fish head. Okay, so um, someone pointed out uh, this, which I thought was kind of silly, but they said Dagon looks a bit like modern-day miters worn by bishops. I don't know if we have a picture of that. I thought that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know if that's um, what that is. But as these examples indicate, fish were of a particular significance to the Ninevites. They were located on the Tigris River, but they weren't near like a major salt body of water. Now, don't you find it maybe coincidental that the man that God had called to arise and go to Nineveh had just had a run-in with a great fish? I think it's very interesting. Remember, Jonah has just had an experience of being inside the stomach of a fish. And we talked last week about the historical record of this happening to a man in the 1800s who was accidentally swallowed by a whale shark and was rescued a day later. He was unconscious. His skin had been permanently bleached white from the prolonged exposure to 105 degree stomach acid. And so it's very probable that three days in the stomach of this sea creature, Jonah arrives in Nineveh with a distinctly white, almost ghostly appearance, his hair possibly being burned off. So here comes into the city a bald albino that no one has ever seen before in the history of the Assyrian Empire. And they're watching him. Maybe some of them witnessed him being spit out of the fish. That would be an interesting morning as you're catching fish on the seashore and you see that happening. And then he marches into Nineveh, stops halfway through the city, and then begins to call out judgment on the city. Perhaps that message would have been effective given Jonah's experience. So please don't miss this. I believe God used Jonah's disobedience and his stubbornness and his sin to actually strengthen his testimony and effectiveness to the Ninevites. God is sovereign, and he will have the glory, and he will have the preeminence. So Jonah's message, albeit a very brief message of eight words, reaches the ears of the people. Let's see how they respond. Look at verse 5, our third section, Nineveh's, uh, Nineveh's mortification. It says in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, if you could real quick, if you have your Bible, circle the word God here. Uh, God is mentioned, but I want to just make a distinction here. This is not Yahweh. Uh, this in the Hebrew is Elohim. So Jonah had earlier to the mariners revealed the name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel, whether you say Jehovah or Yahweh. He had um, revealed that name to the mariners on the boat. But see, the Ninevites here are calling upon 
Elohim, right? Which to them would be the all-powerful creator God, whose name itself is plural. So they're recognizing as an ignorant people, they're recognizing the creator God is about to judge our violent barbarity. And so it says, the people of Nineveh believe God. If there's ever a miracle in the Bible, there's a sentence for you. The people of Nineveh believed God. And, and so they uh, are placing their faith in Elohim. So listen, this is not just mental assent or agreement like, you know what? Yes, I believe, you can use that word in a very shallow way. I believe that vegetables are good for me. I believe that, but that doesn't mean I'm going to eat them, right? Some people say, I believe that's good for me. Uh, and so this is, this is true faith. And so they fast in verse 5. They put on sackcloth. If you're not sure, you've heard that in the scriptures. What is that? That's a very rough, coarse fabric. It would kind of be like dressing your kids for their first day of school um, in a burlap sweatshirt um, or to go to the gym wearing burlap sweatpants, right? They'd just be itchy and annoying and people would kind of go, what is that about? The idea behind that is that you are wearing that as a sign of discomfort and a sign of mourning and a sign of brokenness. And so notice with me, the Ninevites aren't ignoring Jonah. They're not dismissing Jonah. The text doesn't say, and the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. It says they believed God. So they, in this one singular act of repentance and faith, turn away from their sin and turn to faith in God. They couldn't keep doing the same thing. They needed to change. There needed to be a change. And they, they needed to, to have an alignment with the will of God. What do we call that? We call this repentance. David Gusick says it this way. He says, many modern expressions of repentance, the modern way of doing that, which is wrong, is to make excuses and justify reasons for the sin. Those are really not repentance at all. Often they are only attempts to justify and excuse sin. Nevertheless, you sinned or you didn't. If you did, there's no excuse. If you haven't, there's no need to repent. Repentance and excuses simply don't belong together. And so, like I just said, they turned in faith to God and then they turned away from their idols in repentance. So we would call this repentance and faith. These are two sides of the same coin. You can't say one is, uh, only one side is important. These are both critical. Now, listen, you don't do two things to be saved any more than if I said, hey, um, after the service today, let's all leave Sarasota, Bradenton, Lakewood Ranch, and let's go to Miami. Uh, if I were to say that, that sounds like two actions, but it's really one action. In other words, it's impossible to go to Miami unless we leave Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota. Does that make sense? So we have to leave here in order to arrive there. Uh, and so these are two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. You don't just repent and that's it. You don't have faith without repentance. And so from the most important noble to the least important peasant, the people of Nineveh stopped sinning and they started believing. Even the king. Look at verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he, there's a similar word to the one about Jonah. He arose. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. If anyone was exempt, you'd think the king. Like, okay, you guys wear it. But he does the same thing. And then verse 7, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. 
Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. All right, so it seems out of order here, not to confuse us, but in Hebrew literature, sometimes the result is listed first, and then the author goes back and describes the process. We see that in Genesis with creation. And that's what happens here. So he issues a proclamation uh, that man and beast are not to eat or drink water. They're to wear sackcloth, including the animals, including the family dog, and they're to cry out to God. So he commands them to turn from their evil ways, to turn from their violence, and his assumption is God may turn and God may relent after all. But notice with me in verse 8 that the king demands that each person turn from, quote, the violence that is in his hands. Violence. Violence is a term that's being thrown around today. Uh, But the ultimate definition of violence is social injustice, where you're trampling the rights of other people, where you're being inhumane to someone else created in the image of God, where you're harming them with physical threats. And so in their foreign policy, the Assyrians used violence. They were more ruthless than any people in the ancient world. And the king, though, is referring not to their exploits, but to the treatment that they have with one another, how they're treating one another. They're acting violently to one another. And so he says, we're no longer to do that. We're to put that aside. Uh, We are to turn from the violence that our hands are used to doing. And so notice with me, church, every area of their lives were affected by this. So their physical lives were impacted because they weren't eating or drinking for weeks. Their social lives were impacted because they're not dealing with other people corruptly or violently. That, That was how you would deal with socially people. They can't do that anymore. Their spiritual lives are now filled with prayers and worship to Elohim, not to Dagon. Their pleasures in their life of food, drink, comfort are now interrupted by fasting and sackcloth. And so listen, their repentance here is not some flash in the pan or crying crocodile tears. This wasn't kind of like, oops, my bad. This wasn't one of those moments. This was full repentance. I just want to camp out here for a minute. For the believer, something transformational happens when we are brought from death to life. You aren't brought from unchurched to church. That's not the idea. The idea is that you are brought from death to life. We are regenerated. We are made alive, though previously we were spiritually dead. Now, some people disagree about whether we're first made alive or we first have repentance and faith. Uh, I tend to see those things happening simultaneously. But one thing we should all agree on is that true repentance and faith is not feeling just sorry or having a tinge of regret or remorse that you got caught. It is, as J.I. Packer says, he says this, justification is the truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. Amen? This is what we have because of the work of Christ. We have brought, been brought from death to life. And because there's been repentance and faith, we now are made alive. So Jonah must have been in sheer amazement, maybe not in a good way, as the king proclaims this fast. In fact, we're going to see what Jonah's response is when we conclude our series next Sunday. But let's see God's response 
in verse 10. And just to give a little um, spoiler alert, it's mercy. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, please don't misunderstand the work of God here. God will always act consistently with his word. This isn't God like, yeah, I had a bad day, so I'm going to just judge. And it's been a great Tuesday. I'm just going to have mercy. Uh, Or some people erroneously believe that the God of the New Testament is just full of hugs and smiles and candy. And the God of the Old Testament is just an angry old man. And these are two different gods. Okay, that is a, a false belief. God is always faithful to be consistent with his word and to act consistently with his word. So note with me on the screen Deuteronomy chapter 18, just to clarify some confusion. Deuteronomy 18, he says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So notice with me, God's just being consistent with what he's already said. God's intention was to visit justice upon the nation of Assyria. But because of the proclamation of Jonah, the people turned from their evil. So God was faithful to and he was consistent with his word now this is only half the story because around 100 to 150 years later the prophet nahum prophesies judgment and calamity and not mercy against nineveh what happened well though there was repentance here it was short-lived you could say it was a it, it was only a generation long these people repented but their children did not and their children's children did not. They eventually, in the city of Nineveh and the people of Assyria, went back to their evil, violent ways. And sadly, God sent swift judgment against them. Nahum 3.5 on the screen, God says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. It's a sad, final ending for Nineveh. But here... Through Jonah's preaching, the people genuinely repent and God genuinely relents from judgment. The city of Nineveh experiences here what could be argued as the greatest spiritual awakening in all of human history through a lousy sermon preached by a failure of a prophet. If that doesn't encourage you that God can't do great things through real, you know, basic uh, instruments and that God is the God of the second chance, I don't know what, what will encourage you. But what happens in Nineveh is not normative. This is not normative. You just walk outside and just say, hey, judgment's coming. Uh, God's going to judge your sin in 40 days. And then everyone around you hears that and turns in faith. That's not a normative thing that happens. It's very rare. And when we look back through the centuries of church history, at various times, God will sometimes work in a unique way, and he'll bring what I call renewal to communities. He'll bring renewal to entire people groups and and even nations. Now, I like the word renewal better than revival because revival can sometimes conjure up maybe more of an experiential thing where renewal is is a reminder of the personal work of God. It's a a brokenness over sin. 
It's an urgency to be holy, and it's an urgency to go out and live on mission. And so that's, that's what we're called to do, right? So that's just renewal to me. Uh, and so it's a renewal of prayer. It's a renewal of faith and fervency to live in reverent obedience to God. And that happens here in Nineveh. Now, Greg Laurie says this. I love this. Greg Laurie says, Nineveh's days were numbered, but that is true of every nation. Every nation has a moment when it is born and a moment when it either dies or is dramatically diminished, and that includes our nation. God's judgment ultimately will come to America. It's only a matter of time. Our prayer should be that the Lord would send at least one more great spiritual awakening in our land before that judgment comes. Wow. Now, don't miss this. Both the decree and the delay of God's wrath, those demonstrate his mercy. God gives the Ninevites a clear deadline and a clear description of what will happen if they don't change. He says the city's going to be overthrown. Now, that phrase was used of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, certainly everyone in Nineveh would have been familiar with what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They'll be overthrown. And so this would have awakened their attention. And notice that God gives them 40 days, 40 days to turn from their violence and wickedness. It's not seven days. It's not four days. It's not 40 hours or 40 minutes. He gives them over a month to repent. Both the decree of God's coming wrath as well as this extended delay, both of those demonstrate the patience and the gentleness of the Lord in his judgment against sin. And today, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's his mercy this morning that reminds us that as we sing that song, that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. I was struck this week by looking at the fact that Jonah was a preacher and that we as Christ followers uh, are also preachers. You might say, well, I thought the guy up front is the preacher. No, we're all preachers of the gospel. And so to apply this passage of Scripture, I wanted to just spend a minute and talk about what we preach. All right, So it's not what pastors preach, it's what we all preach. So jot these down. I'd love for you to jot these four uh, notes down. Okay, First of all, as we apply this passage of Scripture before we close, number one, what we preach is the revelation of God. God instructs Jonah, hey, call out the message that I tell you. So Jonah, don't come up with your own novel ideas. Don't come up with your own opinions. Just stand up, project your voice, say what God has given you to say. When we preach the gospel, we are to preach not our words, but God's word. When we declare the gospel to an unbelieving world, we don't have to dress it up and make it more appealing, more attractive, more appetizing. Whatever phrase you want to use, depending on your generation, okay, uh, we don't have to add, here's a few words, flash, pizzazz, swag, or mojo. I don't know where you're at today. We don't have to add any of those to the gospel to make it more palatable. You don't need to add special sauce to the great news of God's dear son dying in our place. God doesn't need our ingenuity or our scaffolding. And he just needs us to proclaim the good news, right? And so what we preach is the revelation of God. Secondly, if you're taking note, what we preach is credible. It's incredible, but it's credible. Jonah's message, listen, Jonah's message captures the hearts of the men of Nineveh, not because it was nonsense, but because it was news. You see, it was fascinating to me studying this. During this exact time that, that Jonah shows up, the Assyrian Empire was in considerable danger from her northern neighbors. 
And so the thought of complete destruction in 40 days, that was not a far-fetched idea. That was embedded in the hearts and the minds and the fears of the Ninevite people. Uh, Just think of America uh, during the Cold War when you would hear sirens or you'd go into the bunker, those those fearful times of, hey, this could be the time that the bomb goes off. And, And so listen, we aren't ashamed of the gospel, right? Because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And so we have a message that is credible. This is not some crusty religious book that is dead. This is the very revelation of our gracious creator who has unveiled his glorious son before us to behold. Amen? We have a world that's an absolute pandemonium right now. Do you think the gospel today is credible to speak into 2020? I mean, people today are crying out for justice in the world. Does the Bible not speak about justice? Absolutely. Don't you think the gospel is credible to speak about that? That God looks after the oppressed and his word does address this. Today, people are are living in isolation and despair and anxiety. Does the gospel not speak to these things? And how Jesus' shalom, his peace, has been given to us in the midst of chaos? So what we preach, listen, it's not irrelevant. It's not outdated. We have the most credible message of hope for the world today. It's not a political message, though it impacts politics. It's not a social message, though it does impact social issues. It's not just for the physical world, but for the spiritual. And yet the gospel does address our physical life. And so what we preach as Christians is credible. Don't be intimidated, believer, at the good news that you have to share with someone who doesn't believe. What we preach is credible. Thirdly, if you're taking note to apply this, what we preach is made visible by our testimony. Jonah's message may have been more effective because of where he had just been. His testimony may have ministered in a more significant way to the people because of the false gods that they were bound to. And in like manner, you and I, we can't divorce the message from the messenger. In other words, God's plan could have been to herald the good news with angelic billboards, and that would have been it, but he hasn't chosen to do that. Uh, So we don't just robotically tell the gospel apart from sharing how the grace of God has impacted us personally. I'm someone who's been a recipient, a beneficiary of this good news, and Jesus is wonderful, and he's changed my life, and I'm not the same. And so because of that, I want you to know that I still sin. I'm not sinless. I still sin. But God has provided a way for me to be free. He's provided the personal work of Christ for my salvation. So I can share that with you and talk about the wrath of God with a smile on my face because I know whom I believe. So if we don't do that, if we don't share what Christ has done in our lives, then we might just be tempted to communicate the bare minimum message devoid of hope or power. We have such a great opportunity to invite people to know our story. We live in a postmodern age where people believe truth is relative. And I say, let's use that to our advantage. I think it's silly. There isn't this idea of relative truth. But we can, when they say, hey, that's your truth, bro, I can say, no, man, this is what Christ has done in my life. And you can't argue with that. We can get into arguing over, over these truth claims, but I can tell you Christ has changed my life and I can use it to my advantage. So 2 Corinthians 3, 2, um, Paul says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. 
Uh, one person said there's five Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people won't read the first four. And I thought, wow, that's, that's awesome. So what Jonah preached, I think, was made tangible by his testimony. And what we preach is made visible by our testimony. So do you know your testimony? Do you understand what Christ has done in your life? And can you share that with someone else? Well, finally, number four, what we preach when we talk to others about the gospel must include repentance and faith. Jonah chooses to only communicate the judgment and wrath and timeline of God's retribution. He doesn't offer any hope. He doesn't offer any encouragement, any insight into the person or nature or character of God. He doesn't say, yes, you've heard of Elohim. Let me show you the name of God. Let me read to you the word of God. It doesn't go there. He's holding the proverbial sign and just yelling out that the end of the world is near. But did you observe that there's more hope in the king of Nineveh's proclamation than in Jonah's? Jonah implies repentance because of the coming judgment, but in his sermon, he doesn't mention that you should place your faith in God. In fact, he doesn't even mention the name of God, but the king mentions God's name twice. So we are to preach both the grace of God as well as the wrath of God. Without God's holy law being transgressed, we have no logical reason for Jesus to be crushed by the wrath of God. That would just be cruel and sadistic from a sinister God. But because of the law, because of the law, the cross is now the greatest display of grace and truth in all of creation. I, I want to make sure that we as a church use the entire phrase I'm about to put on the screen. We need to use this entire phrase, turn from your sin and believe Christ. Okay? Now sadly, modern Christianity, much of modern Christianity leaves off the first half of that statement. So instead of subtracting sin and adding Christ, we just add Christ, but we don't subtract sin. So modern Christianity in many contexts is Laodicea. It's just a church without repentance. So, hey, just believe Christ and you're good. Just, hey, follow Jesus and he'll make all of your wild dreams come true and you might even get to go to Disney. I mean, who knows? Just believe Jesus, but we don't have a repentance in our message. And so listen, the gospel is not merely the end is near, but neither is it merely God loves you and wants you to go to heaven. What we preach must include both repentance and faith. Now, as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close this time with a time of singing and reflection. And in a minute, we're going to invite you to, during the song, as the um, worship team is singing, we want to invite you to um, grab the elements uh, here at the front, two at the back, and make your way back to your seats as we're singing during the music time. Uh, and just hold on to them. And uh, Dean is going to lead us through a time of receiving the communion elements. And again, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we want you to abstain from this. This is only for the household of faith, only for believers. And so this morning, like the Assyrians, God speaks to the people of our nation. And he calls us to repentance. He's speaking to each one of us individually. And I want to just say this. If you're walking today in unrepentant sin, God is calling you to repentance that he may have mercy on you. Listen, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about God. It was written to show us that we are all, even those who seemingly represent him or misrepresent him, we are all in need of his mercy, grace, and another chance, a second chance, a third chance. 
a fourth chance. Charles Swindoll says this, and I love this. He says, one of the characteristics I find most attractive about the Bible is its raw realism. When God paints portraits of his servants in the scriptures, he resists airbrushing away all the warts and blemishes. Moses was a murderer. David has adultery and hypocrisy on his record. Jonah was a proud and stubborn prophet who nearly missed an opportunity of a lifetime because of his ugly bigotry. Jacob had a deceitful had deceitful ways. Abraham lied more than once. Peter waffled when the pressure was on. Even John the baptizer struggled with doubt. So did Thomas. So we shouldn't be shocked that Paul and Barnabas had their conflict. You cannot continue life as usual or stay where you are and go with God at the same time. Does that describe you today? You cannot continue life as usual or stay where you are and go with God at the same time. See, Jonah's message had weight among the Ninevites because of his experience in the fish. And in like manner, how amazing is it that our repentance derives all of its efficacy from the death of Christ. The the judgment of God against sin can be satisfied with a singular act. Today, he doesn't require you to put sackcloth on or to stop eating or drinking in order to escape his terrible wrath. The Bible explains that Jesus, the Lamb of God, took our place and though he was without sin, he died for us and the full judgment of God against sin was poured out upon Jesus. Jesus was the faithful prophet who declared only what the Father gave him. Jesus preached the judgment of God and yet simultaneously satisfied the judgment of God by keeping the law perfectly and then laying down his life on the cross for his beloved. Jesus also arose and he entered the city, the city of Jerusalem, to bear our sins in his own body. And this morning, no matter how far you've fallen away, no matter how many times you've made mistakes, no matter how many sins you think disqualify you from his grace, he is the God of the second chance. My question to you as a professed believer is will you turn from your sin? Will you repent? Will you trust Christ? For you non-believer, this morning, will you Receive what Christ has done on your behalf. Turn from your sin and be made alive by the Spirit of God. Today, we want to trust our lives to Christ, the true and better Jonah. Amen? So bow your heads with me. Let me pray. And then we'll, during this song, make our way to those three different tables, grab the elements, come back to our seats. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you pursue sinners like me. I remember in my waywardness running from you, just trying to be defiant against you, thinking I was wise in my own eyes and yet so empty, so dead. And yet in kindness, you drew me, you made me alive even while I was dead in trespasses and sin. Lord, I thank you that today you have continued over these years and years of faithful covenantal love, continue to have mercy even when I sin. I, I didn't become a Christian and didn't just get rid of all sin. I still struggle. Lord, thank you for your mercies today. Thank you for your mercies today for your people. Lord, for those of us who are wayward, would you draw us back? For those who don't know Jesus, may may today be the day that they're saved, that they harden not their heart. But today can be the day of salvation. Lord, work in our hearts, and we thank you for the cross as we celebrate what you've accomplished for us today. It's in Jesus' name alone. We can even approach God's throne. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.